What's up, everybody? It's Lee. Some of you guys might know me as Intuition, and you're tuned into Kind of Neat. Follow me on Twitter at It's Intuition. Follow my man, Ben Shim, behind the boards at I Am Database, based with two S's. You can follow us as a unit at That's Kind of Neat. You can follow us on our new Facebook page, facebook.com slash kind of neat. Uh, hit us on Instagram. Both of us have the same Instagram names out here slanging these filters on the streets. Yeah, now uh, you can find everything wrapped up in a pretty package at kind of neat.net. And you can see our guest today, Daedalus, perform a very interesting uh, mix of music on his monome at youtube.com slash that's kind of neat. Uh, I had a really busy week last week, man. I, I was like, flew out on Monday to Seattle, worked on Tuesday uh, doing a photo shoot in Seattle, flew out at 6 a.m. in the morning the next day to work in Los Angeles. Then I had a day of running errands. And then Friday, I had another photo gig. And then I had to run downtown to bartend afterwards. And then the next morning, I did the Saul podcast, which came out. And uh, and then I had a show that night, which went swimmingly. Thank you guys all for coming out. But yeah, uh, I wanted to give a quick shout out in Seattle. When I found out I was going there, I just put out a quick tweet slash Facebook post that was like, yo, I'm going to be in Seattle for Monday night and Tuesday night. Like, what's really good? And this dude, Deontay, hit me up and said, hey, you should check out the restaurant that I cook at. It's called Toulouse Petit. And we ended up going there on Monday night after I, I kind of yelped his restaurant and it, it had like 500 reviews and four stars and everybody was raving about it. And so we drove the 20 minutes from our hotel. First and foremost, when we got to the hotel, at, uh, we were staying at a Radisson by SeaTac and um, this cute girl comes in to the elevator that we're in. And uh, one of the guys I was with was like, oh, hey, uh, what's going on in Seattle tonight? And he's like, oh, wait, you're in a Radisson by the hotel you're, or by the, uh, by the airport. You're probably not from around here. And she's like, no, I'm from around here. But she was like kind of in a hurry to get on the elevator and then in a hurry to get off the elevator. And my buddies joked like, oh, man, that was, a, that was a hooker. And I'm like, no way. Like she looked mad normal. But they're like, no, yeah, dude, why would she be a local and be in a hotel or like an airport hotel at 10 at night? Like what would she be doing here? And I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe she is a hooker. That's crazy. And so after we get back from eating, uh, <laughs> one of the homies made it his mission to try and see if he could find her on Craigslist. And lo and behold, he found her on Craigslist. Uh, and, and she was indeed an erotic masseuse or something, I guess. I don't know. Needless to say, none of us called her because we don't partake in these, those heathenistic activities. It's disgusting. Uh, but anyway, so we drove our 20 minutes from, from um, SeaTac out to downtown Seattle and ate at this place to lose petite. And the dude, Deontay, was not there that night because he was like, yeah, come through. I'll hook you up. But I just need to shout this place out because it was a fucking amazing food. It was like this kind of like Creole Cajun fusion shit. And we didn't eat a bad dish there the whole night. And they were having like some kind of happy hour thing at night from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. So everything was like cheap appetizers for like six bucks. And we were just pigging out on like crawfish filled beignets and, and like duck pate and shit. It was it was so bomb. And it was crazy because the whole time that we were there, they're playing like some underground rap Pandora station and it was like Aesop Rock and Camuteo and and uh you know like Blueprint and all these people that I like grew up listening to in my uh late teens early 20s and and um it was just interesting and so it was so good that we ended up taking the the crew that we shot with the next day back there for dinner again and ate there two nights in a row and uh it was just amazing having said that like uh 
you know, I do have a passion for food and I love food. And this conversation with Daedalus starts off on a cool note where he's passionate about coffee. And we kind of start talking about that. He has a very refined coffee palate that I thought was pretty interesting. And to be honest, this was one of my like favorite conversations I've had in a while on kind of neat. Alfred Darlington is the guy's name. He's an exceptional beat maker, producer. He's been around in the scene doing his thing. And he has an interesting story and he's a great talker, very smart guy. And I never lost interest in the conversation at all. Not that I ever do, but this one was particularly interesting. So I hope that you guys enjoy it. And without further ado, I'm going to get right into the conversation with my man, Daedalus. How long have you been into coffee? When did you start realizing that was a passion? There was a specific moment in Italy, and this was, I was on the road, so it wouldn't have been that long ago, maybe like, you know, six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I was touring there and just, I would re up on coffee and caffeinated beverages. And then, man, there was, it was like one moment on the edge of the highway where this super angry dude served me up an espresso mm-hmm. surly as all together. And I drank it and, uh, it was like the best thing I ever had at that moment. The best, just like truly like, you know, you feel, changing yeah, you feel your spirit exiting the top of your skull a little bit, moving towards heaven. Wow. Something like that. Anyway, so, but the dude was so surly. The dude was like, you know, basically spat in the cup. And that taught me an important lesson about like that style of, of beverage and how much is going into it. And yet also like in the nature to which service. He was like the, uh, the coffee Nazi or something. But he was just a roadside dude. Like yeah. he probably did it 10 million times. Right. And it's an important, I mean, like it was a thing where it's like, that guy's probably made that thing so many times. So automatically he doesn't even think about it. The barometric pressure in the room, the weight, the speed, all these things that like affect a coffee. He's probably mastered uh-huh. through just sheer ignorance of it. He's probably been doing it since he was a small, right. tiny barista. Now he's a, uh, old Angry surly barista, barista and yeah. it's a magical moment what is your favorite way to drink a coffee oh straight up espresso just yeah. a straight espresso yeah no sugar no nothing to to muddle the flavors just to get get all clean on it yeah do you brew at home a lot then no i don't trust myself really? i don't have the equipment for it i don't have the the things that make it all good so what are the spots where should uh angelinos be going to get the best coffee yeah until until he was good for a while now they've fallen off mm-hmm. quite considerably sadly it's like a tear drops for them because they were real special in the area mm-hmm. first people to bring the real specialist the one coffee. in venice venice was great that was their show their flagship showroom they had all their fancy devices and yeah. lots of airy it's space a very beautiful and, shop yeah it really is and it still is beautiful it's just like the og machine i heard a legend that they had this one machine in the back this one espresso machine that was like the original starbucks espresso machine wow and that they had it like kind of like an artifact like some sort of magic item yeah it was just chilling back there they would only pull shots from an occasion um you know and and but that that got mothballed and sold off i think just recently and mm. so yeah gnb is the spot right now gnb and go get them tiger are, the, are my favorites and where town. are those at uh go get them tigers on larchmont and gnb's in like right at the uh bottom of angel's flight in downtown la nice they're great yeah people who run it are enthusiastic they're getting great coffee from all over they're not just like a one bean shop they're not like you know Stumptown, which just moved into la it does okay coffee but it's just like they're only going to get Stumptown beans and whatever they're offering so it's, mm. it's fine it's just not quite as much of an adventure right and when at the end of the day i mean i think we're all everyone that's passionate about music or, or this kind of temporary culture you just want that thing that only touches down every once in a while right and you never know where it's going to come from 
It's true of food. I mean, I know so many people who are willing to spend hundreds of dollars for a meal. They won't even spend $10 for a concert. Mm. But it's the same experience. They're just, instead of it being some band that's supplying it, it's some chef. Absolutely, like a little pop-up chef or something. Yeah, whatever it is that makes it special. Right, Somebody who's been doing it for, you know, for a long time or somebody that's a specialist in one kind of cuisine. Right. That's a great analogy. I never thought of it that way. I love Larchmont since you bring that up. It's like this little oasis in the middle of Los Angeles that doesn't make any sense. It's like this beautiful little suburb right in the middle of like – right on Western in the middle of like surrounded by ghettos and shit. Like it's A suburb of yoga pants. Yeah. 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 uh, I had a friend who used to call it the the Larchmont glow. Like when you walk (laughs) around there, everyone looks so happy because it's just a bunch of like a lot of money floating around there. Dude, it's really weird. I find it kind of disconcerting personally, but that doesn't mean it's – it's a bad thing necessarily. Mm. I think a little disconcertment is actually where it's at. Right, right. You know, disruption. Like. Yeah. Where are you from originally? Santa Monica. Oh, you're from Santa Monica. Yeah, no, I'm straight up. I haven't been able to move very far away. No shit. I always figured perhaps you lived in in some of the more artsy areas over here. Like I always took you for like a Silver Lake or, or uh, Echo Park <laughs> guy. You know what I mean? I didn't realize that when you told me you were driving from the west side that you're born and bred. No, absolutely. Nice. I don't know about yourself, but I mean, are you LA? No, I'm I'm uh, originally from out of state. I'm from Alaska. Since I moved to LA, I've been on the west side the whole time. Are you Anchorage or something? No, uh, Fairbanks. Fairbanks, okay. Yeah, cool, yeah. Cool, Have cool. you played up there? No, I never played, but I've actually been there when I was a kid. I had some like family friends that were up there, and I just remember in like very vague memories of like sunflowers that were as tall as the bus I was in. And, yeah, that happens up and, there. And like mosquitoes that were the as mosquitoes, big as the mosquitoes your fists. The, yeah, and, the state bird. That's what we call it. The state bird. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, Seems uh, like an amazing place, though. Talk it is. About, it is talk about the edge of the world. It is great. It's an interesting place to grow up, definitely, and experience. But, you know, now at this point, I've been down here for half my life right. uh, officially, so it's like... I'm a bit climatized now. When I go back, it's it's uh, it doesn't quite feel like home anymore. Do you have generations in California? No, no. I'll, everyone, all my relatives kind of came here during that wave of 60s, 70s, just transformation. California or California. Bust. Yeah, exactly. Where that, are the folks from originally? Michigan um, and Illinois. Chicago and, and, and um, Detroit. Grand Rapids. Oh, Grand Rapids. Yeah. Okay. What brought them out here? Yeah, both of them in the kind of art and educator, educational world. Uh-huh. My dad uh, was an experimental psychologist and then later more of an educator and bureaucrat like bureaucrat is the wrong term but just kind of like on the the background of education yeah he did some of those straight up like you know um, teaching and stuff for a period of time and then became more of an administrator administrator yeah, yeah. on my mom's side she's a fine artist still practices still does the work still shows and then on the flip that was something that she became the dean of fine arts at USC for a period of time. So oh, wow. Kind of more on that, like on a high level administrative side. What was her medium of choice? She's a printmaker and oil painter. Nice. And especially highly interested in Judaism. She's a, a Judaical artist, I guess is the phrase. Okay. So were you raised uh, in a Judaism in your life? Kind of. Yeah. It's sort of weird. Like, and I don't. There's a lot of mix up to this, but like my mom at a certain point really rediscovered her religious roots uh-huh. that she doesn't necessarily have. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I just mean that she is a, a very practicing Jewish person. But if you met her grandmother, my grandmother, I should say, uh, her mom, yeah. she wasn't super like she did Jewish stuff, but it wasn't like she was right. holding the uh, lighting the menorah, I think, in a way. So I think it's very common for people to kind of 
discover roots that aren't necessarily things that are part of them, but they don't necessarily own in the same way. Until right. Later in life. It's and almost so, this kind of human nature to like rebel in one way or another, whether it be rebelling against your parents by not being religious, if they were religious or going like, Oh, Hey, we have this religious history and you never taught me about it. Sure. So that's almost a form of rebellion in and of itself. Just finding any kind of order to this chaos. Yeah. We all live in a certain amount of mess. And yeah, so I absolutely. think when people find their structure and I, I never was personally so into it, but I was certainly raised at a certain point in my, my childhood when this kind of changed happened it suddenly became something that was a little bit more on on the mind and uh. Uh, on her mind and um yeah when we saw christmas trees every year in little odds and ends but uh there was a certain point where i i i did some things as kind of a show and now i'm i'm cool with it not being part of my mix so right much. right did you have to do the whole bar mitzvah and everything with totally that? Yeah. yeah i learned some words and i said those words and now i'm I'm supposedly part of a tribe. Weren't yeah. into it though. Nah. Yeah. What was Dad's religious beliefs? He was like, yeah, nothing. There was, there's not much religion in, in his family. I'm sure if you go back a bit, I mean, everybody seems like they had that emphasis in the early American life that yeah. was you had to be part of some sort of uh, organization or tribe or whatever to kind of make it in that kind of squirrelier nature of things. But uh-huh. as it happens, he, at least for as far back as they remember, they've all been atheists uh-huh. and not even agnostic, just like straight up nothing there. Yeah. Salt of the earth kind of people like yeah. farmers and stuff, you know, people who you kind of begin and end with what you get out of the ground. Either you're going back into it or you're getting something out of it. So I think it's, there's something to that. Your last name is Darlington, right? Now it is. Oh, it wasn't before. No, no. Oh, okay. My bad. No, no sweat. No, that's, so that's, that's a, that's a nom de plume that you took on. What it is, is it's kind of like a nom de plume, but it's, it's less of an alias, less like Daedalus uh-huh. being a name. It's actually my wife and I, when we were getting getting married. My last name was Weisberg Roberts. Weisberg being my mom's, Roberts being my dad's. Okay. A hyphenated and created last name. And it's beautiful that both myself and my sister uh, got this name and were conjoined in this way for my parents. But also it's hard to pass that on necessarily to, to my wife who was less, you know, it's like surnames are already tricky enough. Right. And then for my wife, I think her last name didn't have as much meaning. It wasn't generational. It also had been changed mm. um, in, in the previous generation. So less connection with that, I believe, is the way to put it. So when it came time for us to be married and all the question marks about name changes, we decided instead to find a new name together. Create your own. Mm-hmm. And then based on our history, too, there was a Darlington Street in Santa Monica that had a special importance to us. So oh, wow. We decided to, to make that an emphasis to kind of go there. That's very interesting and awesome. I like the, the last name Darlington too because it sounds so regal. <laughs> Doesn't it sound well, very we, royal? We thought about Darling, just Darling, yeah. just to make it a little shorter rather than, than having that extra bit of spelling that adds maybe raises some question marks. But that's a little, you know, any kind of language has meaning. It's very rare. Like we're one of the very few cultures where names don't have direct meaning. Mm-hmm. A lot of other cultures, you have a name that actually means something in that environment. So you have this reference point. Right. We have all these names that just float or they're biblical. And obviously that has meaning as well too, but just not the same. Right. Um, so it's kind of fun to, to kind of pull from something that maybe has a has less total meaning, but it has like a little bit of an emphasis. Like it makes your, your scalp itch a little bit like you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, like absolutely. It has a little regalness maybe. That's cool. Yeah. Dad's experimental psychology. What, yeah. what, what was that about? Like during the 60s and 70s, was it experimenting on, on uh, you know, with strange drugs that we might look back upon? Like what? Nothing super cool like that. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I did did my own fair share yeah, of absolutely. that. I put on that research and got my PhD, <laughs> I think, sadly uh, or wonderfully. Um, he was doing paraphrase theory. At least that's what he got his his thesis paper in. Now, paraphrase theory is fascinating, maybe not to listeners totally, but paraphrase theory being this wonderful emphasis uh, or wonderful examination of of language in its smallest units. Okay. So 
especially when he was doing it partially for the military, which I, I don't know totally the story on that. I've only gotten so much of the oral history out of that. But basically, it's it's studying the smallest units of information, uh, smallest units of of word choice to make for information expression. Uh-huh. So you might just grunt something like mm. so, like analyzing micro slicing, uh, like videotaping and stop pausing type stuff. Or? This is far before the, oh, <laughs> the invention okay. of videotape. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, straight up, he was like, I mean, I'm sure it was. You know, I think they were a mixture of doing things directly with uh, participants and then also just like animal experiments and uh-huh. stuff. I know he, I think he used to run the lab at the University of Michigan for some of the animal animals and stuff. Yeah. Some weird monkey. So, but it, so it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't like psychiatry style. though or anything like that. Like that's he, the thing. Yeah. It's yeah. so much more on the back end, yeah. like the actual, like science, like no, I'm not saying that like psychoanalysis is not scientifically right. based, but Dude, it's like it's sometimes it's some pretty severe mumbo jumbo, especially, you know, it's somebody's opinion more than it is science fact. And yeah. so he was more on the scientific fact side of it. Yeah. But still, we know so little about the human brain. Absolutely. That it's, you know, scratching a surface more than anything else. And he, you know, he did also, he taught for a period of time on, on memory studies. I actually inherited this awesome shirt when I was a kid. It said Dr. Memory on it because he got it as a present from his students when he was teaching at UCLA. Um, just you know. Yeah, I was asking when I heard the um, uh, you know experimental psychology thing. Mm-hmm. My mother got her master's in um, child psychology oh, slash dope. child counseling, like elementary counseling. And so I remember, you know, when my brother and I would get in trouble, she would always have some new fandangled like trendy way to try and punish us or like not really put it like i remember the funniest one was when we would get angry at each other she would sit us down in a chair like we're similar to how we're sitting Mm -hmm. and we would have to compliment each other for five minutes back and forth and uh and i was just (laughs) trying to see if you had any funny stories like that because uh dude that's pretty incredible yeah it was ridiculous i don't know if it ever really uh helped that much it kind of just made us angrier uh but anyhow there has to be a, a lens to focus through right and then it's hard some of that stuff is just the reason we're not all complimenting each other across. We're not mediating through compliments is probably because it was you know a moment in time. Hey, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you said you have a sister? I do have a sister. She's yeah. older or younger? Four years older. She lives in Hong Kong. Wow. She's a professor of art history, I want to say. I don't know if it's in her emphasis or if it's more general, but yeah, Hong Kong, main, uh, not mainland, obviously, but like part of that whole mix-up that's going on out there right now. Wow. It sounds like uh, you guys grew up in a very artistic household, very like free, free-thinking free household, mm-hmm. particularly Santa Monica at that time was probably very open and free-thinking. Yeah, like crazy. What were you like as a child? Like what was elementary school like for you? You know what I mean? Like you, see, you seem really, really smart. That's interesting you say that. I don't, I don't feel terribly like that. I've, I've surrounded myself in, in my life. I've been surrounded by and I feel like I surround myself with very talented, very bright people. Absolutely, and I, I oftentimes feel like not the brightest bulb in the in the pack. But it's good to it's good life. to be around people that make you feel like you're not the smartest person in the room. Yeah, and I think it's an underemphasized talking about some silly experimental psychology stuff. I feel it's important to know your place in things, and to know not limitations, but more like feel the the vague the the walls around us, mm-hmm. and to kind of you know to to strive towards being better, but also to to realize that we're not the most special, singular, beautiful star in the sky. Right, right. And I think by, yeah, by just always asking those questions and always, you know, being in that box, it, it helps. But anyways, elementary school, I don't remember terribly much. I, don't, I just, I remember very vividly that Santa Monica, where I grew up on Southside Santa Monica, was very much dog town. Okay. And that's a term I didn't really hear too much um, in a good way. 
for a long time. Nowadays, we can talk now about dog tanning. Yeah, yeah, it's like the invention of modern skating and all this stuff. Right. It's great. At the time, I just remember a lot of like vague gang stuff, like the V13 in Venice, Venice 13 was like always a really scary thing. So if you went a little too far south, you would encounter them. All the skate punks and like surf Nazis and all that stuff. That was just right. That was kind of what was happening. Even though there was like this pervasive artistic attitude and almost a communist approach to the government in Santa Monica. Santa Monica was this little island against the rest of Los Angeles. Those of listening might not know the Jack's geography. There's like these... L.A. is this large county, but then it consists of these cities that don't necessarily constitute a Los Angeles city. So you have a place like Culver City was also an independent island of cityness alongside Santa Monica. And there's a few others in the kind of greater border that is Los Angeles right. County. And so there's a lot of freedom afforded both in the governance of Santa Monica and then also in a weird fashion too, even like the police actually were people that lived in Santa Monica, unlike the uh, LAPD, which oftentimes they live in the border towns and they police areas like Compton or whatever that they don't actually live in. And I feel like it changes the relationship, say, of the governance if they actually live in their city they're governing. Anyways, right. a lot of freedom growing up there and a lot of opportunities for other people's freedom to directly impact my face. <laughs> Right. In that way. <laughs> well, and that's the interesting thing is now uh, in modern Los Angeles, Venice and Santa Monica are these extremely desirable places to live, mm -hmm. high end, high rent, good people in general there. But back in the, you know, 70s, early 80s, et cetera, et cetera, like it was pretty dangerous. Well, just crack. Yeah. Crack hit in this crazy fashion. And I, I don't remember the exact moment that the things turned, but it was definitely like, yeah, tough, yeah. tough times economically. And then things got crazy in LA, the gang violence that really ramped up and led in through what would be the early 90s when it kind of surfed in a more na nationwide consciousness. It's just like, that's, that happened. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. to just be a small kid witnessing it and just the cultural shifts and stuff and it's exhilarating and I'm happy to be from here, but also, yeah, it, it I think a certain amount of, of being a musician or any musician is a, is an interest in having your story told, obviously the expression through music and stuff, but also that weird psychological crutch of somehow needing to be heard. It's like such a big part of it. And I yeah. feel like when your voice gets taken away from you because of a childhood thing or because it's, it's something that you're not given easily. Mm -hmm. I think it's where a lot of musicians come from psychologically. And I feel like, yeah, there was sometimes when I was the awkward kid in elementary school and, and these other spaces that made it so that like, yeah, now I'm, I'm a pretty damn motivated musician. Right. Right. Uh, when your voice is taken away as a child, you won't, you strive to get it heard mm -hmm. later on in life. And so in what ways do you feel like your voice is getting taken as a child? Just being awkward, I think. Yeah. And then not having that many, that many, like I had some very close friends growing up, but then like, I feel like you probably hung out with a lot of adults when you were younger. Like, did your parents have a lot of dinner parties and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm sure you were like kind of, uh, the very, Oh, Alfred, come in and show them what you can do, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that actually happened a fair bit. I never thought about that, but I, I, there was definitely – I mean, here's the thing. Though. I was a second kid, uh -huh. so I was also a little bit uh, being able to hide under the under the table and listen to the the big kids talk mm -hmm. and listen to the adults do their thing. And my sister was – she wasn't a performer or something. She wasn't paraded around, but she definitely has been a bright light. So she's a 
she's a good person for that kind of conversational talk. I was probably afforded a lot more leeway. Right. Yeah. I mean, literally well, my I'm, parents I'm and all their psychological mumbo jumbo, like I had no oversight. There was periods of time when I could just leave the house for days. I've heard that, um, you know, the first kid you protect like with, uh, your last especially dying breath and the second the daughter, one, especially yeah, yeah. the first daughter. And then the second child, you'll let him juggle knives or whatever. Were you a prodigious youth? was music. Did music come to you early? Like, uh, or what were your early talents? Yeah, that's the thing. I, I had an early, early failure that led to music. And that was, I really wanted to be an inventor when I was really young. Mm. Like my parents kind of teased me about the fact that I would take apart all the electronics in the house, but I could never put them back together. Right. I didn't really, I had like fumbly fingers. You I was, wanted to see how things worked. Totally. But in that way of, of I was looking for magic in them, mm. not so much the mechanics in them. The boring, the boring things didn't really interest me too much. It was more like the, the, the danger or the ephemeral thing. Like when you break open a television, you can hear the squeal of it. And as the like rare gases escape, this is like an old tube yeah, television, not the LED, uh, LCD things. And like that kind of magic of like the, wow, this thing's like literally explodes when you like hit it hard enough with a hammer. Now that obviously isn't going to come back from the dead. You're not going to fix that thing. And other kids probably that's where they got to. But I was, I was looking for that in the thing. Mm. And, um, that failure of being able to put things back together. And, you know, it's like, I think when my parents saw this interest, they bought me all those little kits, like build your own, like circuit. Erector sets and stuff like totally. that. Totally. And I never, I never was interested in that yeah. stuff. I, it's funny how we get to the places we, we get and music very quickly became something that I could focus on that could be something. Now, I, again, I never was very good at it. I've become slightly proud of this. It's like, I've never been very talented at music. It's never been easy and it took a lot of practice but that was the thing in the end, actually. That's the thing I'm most interested in is that weird journey that you get there with, not so much the prodigies who are really naturally good right? Um, and tend to not write music. Now, that's a quandary, right? Like, I don't understand how that happens. Yeah, so many they can super talented players who just memorize don't... Memorize and play concertos, but, but don't stuff. create. Yeah. Don't create. Uh, they don't feel the emphasis. They don't feel the need to, like, put back out, even mm. though, obviously, they're part of the communication method. They're part of the... They're, they're, I mean, they're amazing, pe amazing players, but they just, why don't they write? Why don't, why doesn't everybody trying to desperately fill this void that we're all leaving when we're passing? Mm -hmm. That's a question mark and a half. The whole thing of like, you know, we're all going to be filling dirt somewhere in some regard. And why aren't we all desperately trying to create as much as possible out of that? I mean, how to leave something behind. Yeah. What makes us happy enough to like sit here and just to let it happen? Do you worry about your legacy a lot? Yeah. No, I mean, that's it. That's everything. Yeah. And I, I'm, you know, I mean, maybe kids someday, but that's a different kind of legacy. That's yeah. a, that's a, a little bit adding to the problem somewhat rather than just a solution. It isn't like you have kids and it's all it's solved. Right. Like this kind of desperation to, to be heard, this desperation to have a legacy, this, all these little desperate measures just, you know, it's part of the, part of the communication we're all having constantly. And I see it people with, you know, people in their kind of social media desperation, their need to be heard in that regard and their need to have the numbers and this dopamine fix. And mm -hmm. it's a little bit of an addiction. It's a little bit of a part of our, of our mortal coil that we're on all running and stuff. Yeah. I feel, I mean, I find it very interesting and I agree completely with what you're saying, mm -hmm. but it's already been brought up quite a bit as far as like, well, one, you know, you talk about like your dad, not thinking that everyone was like a special individual snowflake or something like that, or, or his family. I can't remember exactly how you worded it, but basically on some, we're not all as special as we think essentially. They're very Midwest like that. Right. So they had a, they had a strong dose of the Midwest, like 
we're cool. But at the same time, I, I like how you openly admit that, like, yeah, musicians, we're, we're kind of self-centered people and we do want to be heard. And, and, and like, that's no matter how humble someone says they may or may not be, like, the point is, is that if you didn't feel like you had something to say, you wouldn't be making music. Oh, my God. And if yes. you didn't want somebody to hear what you were saying, you know what I mean? Because nobody really writes songs just for themselves to listen to. Well, I mean. Unless that, that becomes part of their PR story, yeah. in my opinion. And you should never believe your own PR yeah, story. absolutely. It's written, yeah. yeah. But no, no, you're absolutely correct. It is a strange compulsion to to basically yell at our top of our lungs, something that somebody else is supposed to feel. Now, I heard something recently that, that blew my mind a little bit, but made perfect sense. Have you heard of mirror neurons? I've not. Okay, so mirror neurons are part of our brain. It's a neuron that fires not only when we do something, but when we see somebody doing something. But it fires off as if we're doing it. Uh. So there's a satisfactory feeling in seeing somebody perform a task or see someone do something because it's somehow you're the one feeling like you're doing you it. You get some of the leftover glory from it. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense for all of our forms of media, all of our weird porn consumption, all of our – just everything that we're out there perceiving and witnessing – is laughing being, at a joke, maybe. But that's like yeah, that's also scratching a different itch as yeah. well. This is like laughing at a joke is maybe seeing this kind of weird, this, that weird itchy uh, discomfort that becomes laughter. Uh. And this, I think, is almost like you see it and you feel that you're doing it, and therefore you're part of this communication. So I, I do often think about how weird it is that as a musician, I'm up on stage, basically yelling at audiences, and I, I like to think that with my style performance, there is a dialogue that's possible, or there's a back and forth. Mm -hmm. Awesome. But truth is, it's it's often like a monologue. I am much louder than my audience could ever be in this mix. And they can give me a lot of facial expressions or, or applause or whatever, you know, or booze or whatever this kind of thing that they're giving me. But it's, I'm a lot louder than they are. And so why does somebody like that? Why do they like that? Like I, I like going to shows and I like seeing people pull off amazing music and do these things. But why would the average person who doesn't necessarily understand what's happening on stage enjoy this? And right. I think on some level – they feel that itch where they themselves are on that stage and their monologue is able to be communicated through my monologue. Right. Well, and, and partially the fact that they chose to come see you or come see who, whomever, that also defines them somewhat. It defines their tastes. It defines them as a person. And that, I mean, perhaps that's helpful as well. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I, I do feel like there is, I mean, a lot of people approach a concert like they're scratching a different existential itch where they're able to maybe meet somebody and and then have you know either shared interests shared interests or just just blind sex right. or or uh, or they're able to get drunk or inebriated in a way that mm -hmm. either illuminates their existence or obliterates their existence. They don't think about it. Mm -hmm. Slightly heavy, but those are also auxiliary reasons that I think causes people to also have that shared insanity mm -hmm. of a mm -hmm. live show. Yeah. What were some of your earliest uh, interests or influences that, that really stick out to you? Were you a TV guy? Were you a pop culture guy? Were you a reader? What, like, what were you into? Yeah, TV was huge. I yeah. mean, TV was definitely the thing. And also music as well. Like, yeah. I mean, lucky that my parents had a record collection that I could dig through and ruin. What, what sort of things were you digging through as a kid? Well, they, they had a lot of the, um, the experimental kind of end of things. I mean, both, I think, because their academic environment and also because some of their history, like there was John Cage and Xenakis and a lot of non-such records and and then also a fair bit of Joan Baez and the Fireside Theater, um, which was like a comedy troupe. So they had some of that end of things as well. Not so much the mainstream comedy stuff, not your Steve not Martin's Cheech and stuff, and not that kind of stuff, yeah. but like definitely this other end of things. A lot of the, the, um, 
Dr. Demento was often played in my household, which is like a very specific kind of insanity, uh, humor, insanity, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Like definitely some weird sound effect kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and then I on think the flip I saw side, Dr. Demento live once with Weird Al Yankovic. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. That yeah. was totally the kind of, I mean, he's an interesting character in himself. Yeah, yeah. There's some, some great talk about it. Those of people tuning in, maybe from outside of Los Angeles, I, I, I know he's played elsewhere, but just such a heightening of the absurd and the surreal on radio waves doesn't happen too often anymore. Everything's kind of done for commercial reasons. And certainly he probably had his fair share, but it's, it's interesting to kind of examine music as being a form of expression that doesn't necessarily include sales. Right. It's just something that's weird enough can get played. Right. Right. Like like watching a bad film, it has its own fine wine to it. Yeah. Yeah. But then also my next door neighbor's father's brother. Okay. Next door neighbor's father's brother. Who I was, best friends with the kid who's yeah. father. So your next door neighbor's uncle. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There it's a go. lot easier to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was the manager or something, some relationship to the George Clinton camp. Oh, wow. I think he might've been the dealer. Okay. That might've been the case. Anyways, who knows? Yeah. Uh, Nowadays we would call that a hype man. If you're into rap. <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway, it's a kind of hype man. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, but, uh, that meant I had all the parliament funkadelic records when I was a kid. Wow. And that was, huge for me so you had a you had a penchant towards the kind of the the alternative from a from an early age it sounds like i don't know if it was the alternative though it's just my reality yeah like, well that's what i'm saying is yeah. like what your reality was was what was the alternative to most people almost you know what i mean yeah i mean well i guess so like I mean, your parents I, seem like they're pretty hip is what i'm getting at i you know at the same time they're like the square squares they they have a interesting pedigree I, this is something i should have said earlier they weren't bohemians they weren't beatniks they mm-hmm. were too young to be beatniks mm-hmm. too old to be hippies right it's a funny space. I think generationally, I also have fallen between Generation X and Generation Y. Absolutely. I'm, yeah, I feel the same way, like where I'm not quite a millennial, but I'm not quite a Gen Xer. But you can you can kind of float between both of them. Yeah. No, it's it's like that. It's it's. I mean, I think it gives us a, a, a unique advantage to look at those kind of generational bumps where there was like these population explosions and to kind of kind of see them for what they are a little bit more than just being the mix of it. Right. So I, I hope that's my, that's the case for us, people right. like us, right. rather than the other side where it's just, oh, we don't have anything to glom onto, so there's nothing for us. What's, <laughs> what sort of TV were you into? Did you, did you have a penchant towards the absurdity or, or just what was on? I mean, I didn't have cable until much, much older. My parents weren't super well, were not well to do. Yeah. So we didn't have the early vestiges of cable or MTV until much later, all those kind of things. So, I mean, I just dealt with whatever sitcoms and whatever whatnot, was and, on and not even like VCRs. I mean, don't forget when that technology, when VCRs and Betamax was first rolled out, that stuff was super expensive. Yeah. Oh yeah. So like, I didn't have anything. Um, there was a lot of different feeder systems. I just remember like haunting record stores a lot when I was a kid and just soaking up some of that angst from the retailers it very clearly recall like a lot of my formative music experiences happened in those weird dusty rooms full of like a lot of a lot of vinyl at the at the time yeah and even some tapes and some long box CDs i mean that was the era where i really started to started to get an, an understanding of what was happening around me yeah and being way too young to it i mean i wasn't i didn't have enough money to buy things but the shift going on where there's you seem to be of, able to go and listen at record stores you know well Actually, when I first started, it wasn't even the case. Mm. Like Blockbuster Music was one of the first organizations where you could listen to CDs. Mm-hmm. They would have things at listening stations, but it would only be a handful of CDs in terms of back catalog. It wasn't even like the – seemed like the labels were really utilizing what they had in the past. Like CD being a very baby invention in the early 90s. Right. There was only so many things that was released, and so they were kind of catching up to their back catalogs. Yeah. Um, 
and it was even untested. Like people were also experimenting with DAT as a music format. And there was even in Santa Monica, there was like the DAT music store. And I remember like checking that out and a weird selection of classical music mostly. Wow. Yeah. It was a very mixed up time for formats. And that was probably what the fact that CD was seen as being the future helped the record industry survive whereas it shouldn't have. It should probably have crumbled then. The culture disruptors like, you know, the grunge scene, which so was against commercialism and then was co-opted in that way that it was. Yeah. That should have been the death of it, the whole thing, the zine culture, the DIY tape culture should have been the thing, but they found a way out of it. They jujitsu their way out, whereas they, the early aughts when the music industry should have, they, they didn't figure their way out of that one. Right, right. What age were you at this point when you're when you're starting to go to the music stores in f- thirteen? Thirteen. Yeah. And at this point, so you're like entering junior high. Like, where were you sociologically? What was your standing in amongst your peers? You know, it's interesting. You have this. You have this look back at, at history. I mean, yeah. for for me, I don't think about that stuff too much. Even though obviously we're all products of our right of our history. Quite I feel a like bit. no one thinks about that on the daily. But when you go yeah. back and look at it, it's it's interesting. I and think, I feel like f- from the outside looking in, it can also do a lot of foreshadowing. Maybe. Yeah. No, it definitely foreshadows. And I mean, all, all I, I guess what I'm trying to point out is that. I feel like it is a critical part of my story, but I don't know if somebody blundering into, say, my sound, which is so much of what I present and now is so much a construction mm-hmm. um, and so much of like this release and all these different things for me, if that has – if this would color things properly or not. Mm-hmm. Like in some ways, the invention of music is such a powerful thing because it can be such a generalizer. And I know for some artists, it's about their story. Mm-hmm. And I feel very lucky that it's not totally that case with me. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you freely that like in junior high, um, elementary school, junior high, high school, I was a game kid. This is before video games became quite the kind of social medium that they were. So I'm sure if I'd been just a little, if I'd grown up a little older, I mean, like in a more recent time, I would have been some hardcore. Like the online, online gamer. Kind of, type. I would have been like, yeah, yeah like. Com- competitive. I even considered being a competitive gamer at a certain point in my life. But at that time, it was all pen and paper role-playing games and these kind of community game systems. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I was yeah, heavy, heavy D&D. I mean, like, I would spend almost all my time, other than music, it right. was all entirely spent in these fantasy worlds. So did you start making music around that time? Is that what you're saying? When you Maybe say early, other than music, or do you mean just earlier like consuming? In that, earlier in that, music was also something I was doing. So at what age did you start constructing your own music? Like six or seven. Wow, with I, what? I was playing clarinet at the time. Okay. Um, I wanted to play bassoon. Couldn't. I wasn't big enough. I wasn't the right kid for that. Um bassoon was just like a cool instrument to me for whatever reason i don't think quite the same thoughts anymore was it like was it like you saw and it was the bigger the better i don't know if it was the case it might be the case i think i have a certain like my sonority my like my like my heartbeat or whatever is like very bass Mm, heavy mm. and i was able to pursue that stuff later like i i switched from clarinet to bass clarinet later in life i switched from just playing bass clarinet to also playing double bass yeah Um, i would have played tuba if given an opportunity yeah that's interesting i was in the band for only one year as a Mm. kid in fifth grade and it was I, I picked the baritone because it was the biggest instrument they had. And I was hmm. like, if I'm going to do this, I want to like really be loud. You know what I mean? Like I want, I want the biggest, loudest instrument. Interesting. So, yeah, uh, yeah. It's telling in its own way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, perhaps it was like uh, compensating. Who knows? You know, I drive a huge raised truck now. No, I'm just, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you start playing clarinet and did reading music take easy for you? Uh, no, not, not terribly. Again, music never came easy to me, but um, I definitely, uh, I felt like uh a thing to it. it. It was something that felt right. There was a rightness to it, right? Which was was 
And again, not not because it was easy or because I was good at it, but there was still something righteous about it. So, And when you say like uh, kids that tend to be prodigious youth or whatever, how they can memorize and play, but they don't create, did you find yourself straying away from the page music and instantly trying to create? Yeah, basically. Like I, I always wanted to do kind of my, my own thing. I didn't want to play with the group necessarily as well. Like I think I tended towards instruments that needed, necessitated other other players, mm-hmm. double bass, bass, clarinet, all these different instruments. They weren't solo instruments. I never approached them in a solo fashion. Mm-hmm. I was always much more rhythm section minded and such. But at the same time, like I, I always took to them in, a, in my own fashion. Like mm-hmm. I didn't really want to study what the greats had done. I kind of wanted to somehow put my fingerprints on it ever since they get like ever since i was very young so mm-hmm. so how long did you stick with the clarinet and stuff were you still into that by the time you get to junior high or had you moved on to no i I'd kept up with it all throughout high school and i took double bass in through college okay wow. so i mean junior high is when i started playing double bass uh-huh. bass clarinet switched over from clarinet and then i was off to the races did you dabble with any like traditional form like rock and roll bands when you were in high school you know yeah I mean? for sure i yeah. played in, like the worst my first rock like with band. your friends and such well actually the first band i was part of is i was playing electric bass i couldn't play funk because i was left-handed okay and so my left hand can slap my right hand is kind of dumb yeah so when i'm playing bass can i learn the traditional fashion with the left hand doing the fingering mm-hmm. and the, the right hand doing the picking or the the playing the thumbing I, I i'm left-handed as well and i oh. learned to play guitar the traditional way and i always wonder if i would be better at it if i had i just like flipped it upside down like jimmy you know i think there's something to it I yeah think it really is and so i never could play slap funk music which was kind of weirdly big when i was a kid there was like all the good bass players in my high school could do that, or the people that were seen as being good. Could well, and be on the West Coast, I would imagine it would be is bigger here than other places. Probably. Yeah, well, you have Jane's Addiction and the Red Hot Chili Peppers being big at the time mm-hmm. and other bands as well. But those two bands were all, I just remember my high school being like really, big. you know, if you, you should play the licks from Ocean Size or something like that. And then you were like seen as something. So I didn't do that. I couldn't do that. Uh-huh. And and it kind of kept me in, in a odder side of things. So the first band I actually was part of was called Basically Treble. <laughs> the worst and as that, a great music nerd name that, that well that was that was the that was like a club at my high school okay and i joined as a as a young person um the actual first band i was in was called like elvis christ uh-huh or jesus presley i forget now but yeah one of those two and yeah. that was that was terrible it was the worst and we played bad like thrashy punk and yet i played like these angular weird dissonant like bass lines yeah and everything. And was it all other West Side kids that you were with? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. We, were, were they like skaters, surfer type kids? Or were, did you ever get into that culture? That's the thing is, I mean, like uh, growing up around skaters who would want to beat me up, I shied away from that. Mm-hmm. And then I might have been a surfer given some other lifestyle things. I, I never could swim, but that didn't stop anyone from surfing. You just get in the water and you just paddle around. Mm-hmm. I had some bad moments in the ocean, so I don't go in there very often. Uh so yeah, no, like just either between nature or, or nurture, if you want to talk about people and their weird weirdness, I stay, stayed away from that stuff. I always have been enamored with skate culture and it's always been like a part of my story, I feel like. Mm-hmm. This kind of like always having friends that did that kind of stuff, always have friends that did the extreme sport kind of things, mm-hmm. be it like surfing or skating, things that aren't traditional sport and yet at the same time have this like weird motion mm-hmm. and a, a lifestyle really, especially yeah. growing up in Santa Monica. I've, I've always, I've said it on here before, but like I've always thought that like uh, skateboarding is like a very musical, physical activity. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of muscle memorization that would be similar to playing an instrument where, you know. But I think it's become more athletic over time. Yeah, when I was a kid, I just remember being much more lyrical. Mm-hmm. You would see somebody with their like go get them style or whatever, like their weird like thrashy style. And it wasn't about how high they could ollie or whatever. It's just how like how dope it looked. Just right. Like, 
just the way they would transition their tricks or the way they were a stance was, it was just, that was the thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what makes it so musical to me. And that like, when you watch people play football, they're just fucking charging at each other as totally. hard as they can. But you look at somebody skate and like you said, there's people that charge and go big, or there's people that are smooth and laid back. Just like there's, you could be listening to fucking smooth jazz, or you could be listening to punk rock. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, where'd you go to high school? Hamilton, Santa Monica high school, Santa Monica high school. Was Hamilton even a thing back then? Oh, Hamilton was definitely a thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. They didn't have quite the thing that they have now where, right. you know, like there was a, a huge, the magnet, or like the, they were they were an arts magnet, but Santa Monica High School at the time I was there had the best, like arguably or whatever. I don't know. It's definitely up to argument, but like the best high school orchestra in the country. Oh, wow. It was award winning and traveled around and stuff. And so. So you were traveling with the orchestra? Yeah, sometimes we went to Spain and then oh, wow. they went to, they did some other countries in Europe as well. And there were some other trips and stuff. And I was only a part of that because I never was like first chair bass. I was never like, I did the classical thing and I did band. I, I mean, I literally at a certain point in high school, I was taking like three out of my six periods were all music or if seven periods, sorry, like three or four out of my seven periods wow. were, were all music. So yeah. Did you take any other subjects in high school? I mean, you know, I just did whatever I had to, but I just did music as much as I could. Music was just the thing. Yeah. That was it. You were never like, Oh, I like history. No, I, I've seriously, I've literally screwed myself so bad. Like music is a very ephemeral thing. People's opinions and tastes change. And Absolutely. like, there's a, a novelty aspect to this, this industry where people want the new and, it's it's amazing to think that you know it's like we build this this repository of information, but very very little of our music culture nowadays really uh, wants or like you know history and stuff. They want a sixteen year old. I was just going to bring up like the fetishism with youth yeah. in current culture, particularly. I mean, there's always a fetishism with youth throughout generations, but it seems like right now with the internet, like the youth thing is so crazy. Like people yeah. in every headline, it'll be like, oh, seventeen year old beat maker does this, and it's like. Nobody's saying that if it's a 28-year-old beat maker. And I can know? totally understand that. Oh, it's, I mean, yeah. like there's, there's just like a thing about the novelty. Like, wow, this person has an extraordinary story and right. they're really doing it young and they, they have something to say and they've somehow made it past these gatekeepers where it's so crazy because it took these other people this long to get there. And mm -hmm. so there's something extraordinary about the fact that somebody's getting hurt at such a young age, mm -hmm. whereas there's so many young people who want to do the thing who don't get hurt. And it's mm -hmm. kind of both, I think, a... It's nice to know somebody your age is doing something, but also frustrating in a way that makes it even more enticing. Enticing, almost, yeah. yeah. And and so I understand that. And and so I put so many eggs in that basket, in this music basket. I'm really prepared to be like a street person fairly <sighs> soon, like an eccentric street person. I've worked on my wardrobe. Yeah, bit. with an extremely refined palette for coffee. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> that's the other thing. Maybe this barista stuff could be yeah, somewhere you. somehow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Where'd you go to college at? After? USC. At USC. I had to go to USC. There was no other options. Why is that? Because my mom was the dean of fun arts. Oh, so. right. Did, Again, you, did not, you get into Thornton? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. I did the Thorpe Music School. Yeah, nice. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's pretty elite, right? I guess so. You know, I feel like I got in through. I didn't know what I was doing when I was playing jazz in high school and stuff. I didn't know how to read changes, though. I didn't know all altogether what I was doing. But I felt like I got super lucky during the audition. And I, this is like a silly story. Um, we love silly stories. Well, it's just it's just stupid in the fact that like I really didn't know what I was doing. Like truly, in hindsight, like I did not know what I was playing when I was playing jazz. I could like tell you what the root note was and the third. And I would just basically work around those two things and just blunder. People seem to like it. And they like some, my, my ear where my ears were going, but my hands and stuff did not know the music. And mm -hmm. the one true thing about jazz is that you shouldn't be thinking about it too much. It should just be something that's coming out of a deeper place. Yeah. 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 And that's when it gets good. When it's something that you're like, it's in your, your head too much. It just becomes a bunch of notes. And so do you feel like you lost me as to whether you felt like you were feeling or were you thinking too much? Which Neither. I just didn't have it in my hands or in my head. I okay. didn't have the information. Yeah. I didn't have it. So the true, the thing is though, I'd been doing it with an ensemble, the 
this really talented saxophone player named Ben Wendell, who's gone on, gone on to be like the future of jazz. He's like, per, like he's the head of one of the premier jazz groups right now in the country wow. on Concord. They're amazing. But he was in this ensemble that I was part of called Trace Gatos. There was five of us. It makes no sense. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> and we were playing a lot of the music. So we were playing the songs, but not knowing the soul of the songs. Yeah. Big songs from the, the fake book, what they call the fake book, which is the collection of the great American song book. Okay. But cheat sheeted. So you know the melody and you know the changes. Uh-huh. And you can kind of work your way through it. And so playing on the Third Street Promenade badly, but and making like very little money, making like nothing in the classical duo, making thousands a night. Anyways, so in the audition process, me and some other guys are sitting down going through some of these songs that I know enough of to play, but I don't really know, no. Yeah. And we're just trying to trying to doom each other, basically. Like, oh, man, what if this song comes up? What if this song comes up? What if that? And we don't realize as we're kind of sat around, circled up. And these guys know what they're doing. And I'm just like pansying around. You know, I'm just like trying to play the – press the fingerboard down, much less play. Uh-huh. Um, that the, the people who are actually doing the audition come in, hear what we're doing, and they pass us all. They just give us the pass. Wow. So I like backdoored in. I just like totally so snuck you, in. So you guys are just sitting around discussing what you're going to do and they hear that. And well, think, they, they hear us playing oh, through the changes yeah, and like yeah. trying to trying to figuring like, it out, figuring it out. But like, yeah, I just got lucky. Huh. That's nice. I think if they actually sat me down and auditioned me and actually done the thing proper, I would have probably choked Santa Monica College. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not angry about it. Yeah. It's a good place. So how was the college experience for you? Did you get down with it? Well, that's, that's when things got a little weird, but what, it's okay. Yeah. What happened? Well, just USC being like a very fraternal place. Yeah, yeah. And that has its place. I mean, that's like definitely the reason to go to school nowadays. I don't think people should go to school for knowledge unless you're in a very knowledge-based – like if you need to specifically know all the names of bones in your body for some reason. Right. It's great. College is the spot. You could probably just go to the library down the street or go on the internet and find the exact same information. Right. But I guess college is something that as a piece of paper, it can get you a job because other people have pieces of paper and they want to see people with pieces of paper. Right. But as a fraternal organization, it makes a lot of sense. You make friends. Those friends will go on later in life to play golf with you and you, and you get jobs. business opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Oh, and this so, is a good guy. We used to get drunk together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or he saw me haze somebody once. We yeah. share a secret. Yeah, I have yeah. to hire him or so Oh, we tag teamed a chick together after a keg party. What? Yeah. No, sorry. I never Dude, did. played cookie or whatever yeah. that weird game was. <laughs> This is a soggy cookie. Oh, oh man. Oh. That's yeah, gross, so bro. I uh, I lived I never did the fraternal thing. I never yeah. did that stuff. It was a creepy world that I like had binoculars on. Yeah. Partially because and I don't want to say too much, but there was a period of time in my life when not only was I making music and I was playing role playing games, but other aspects of the urban existence were part of my life. Mm-hmm. And things that came into my hands I would sometimes sell to other people. Right. So this continued on through college for periods of time. And and that way I got to meet. That was the some most people. eloquent way of putting that I've ever heard. I would like to say, but proceed. Well, it, it didn't because it didn't feel like I was actually making a living at it. It really felt like something that I was dicking around with because I was not um, savvy enough to really talk to people. Uh-huh. And so this was a way to talk to people. That's what it came down to. Uh-huh. You know, cool kids would pair yeah. off and mate and all that stuff. And, and every, but everybody needs the supplier. Every, yeah. Well, everyone everyone needs to be somehow socially in a theater system. And right. That was a way to be part of that. At what age did you start experimenting with? with uh, 13, 14. And that was like weed or something? Yeah, weed came in early. Weed came in early. But actually what came in super early was acid. Yeah. 
I've said this before, but there's a moment when I should have been stealing alcohol from my, my dad's, you know, right, like right. Little, yeah. little sidebar or whatever. Instead, you're robbing your sister's acid. No, no, <laughs> she, she, she wasn't the type. It was yeah. more like we just knew older kids. Yeah. Shouldn't have known older kids. And for like five bucks, you could like trip for hours. Yeah. And for like five bucks a weed, you would get like the worst, like, especially Headache, down like Venice Beach. Like, oh, you'd get oregano. Like yeah. your pizza would taste good, but your weed was terrible. <laughs> I mean, we didn't know what we were doing. Right. We just we just pulled our money together and we asked the kids like, "Hey, can we buy some weed?" He's like, "Nah," but we got some of this other stuff, and that was the beginning of a of a few wonderful summers and high you know high seasons. So that became something that paid forward, and then kind of continued on through college and and was a, a really interesting way of meeting a lot of that fraternal and sorority stuff because it wasn't that stuff anymore. I had graduated to other things and and pushing on other things. And, right. And. And that was an amazing way of kind of, again, getting to know a culture, not being part of it, but being very important to that culture. Right. You did a great job of not dry snitching on yourself. Right? That was, <laughs> you danced around that Dude, perfectly. Nah, it's, you know, it's like yeah, people so, don't need so, to know that stuff. So now. it's kind of like you had another backdoor into that too, where you got to witness it and be around it, but more as a spectator yeah. and also a part of it, a, a part of it, but from the outsider's perspective almost. Part of it for a little while until I realized how much there was other people who made uh, specifically livings doing these things mm -hmm. and quickly scaring someone like me off. Yeah. I feel you. Yeah. Like when, when you show up on somebody's radar, I've, I've learned this over time. There's certain people who, because of a force of power, they don't need to necessarily be seen, but you can feel them or other people will do their, do their talking or work. Mm. And, uh, yeah, being part of that was also very illuminating and educational. It's funny because it, it it almost sounds like you could be talking about the music industry at the same time, you know. I feel like I've a large large part of my education towards the music industry was part of these formative experiences of just high school socialization because it's all the same, right? Right. You know, people the way people talk and emphasize and work together and stuff. The internet is an amazing, amazingly powerful new construction, but it's just an expression and expansion of our nervous system. Right? We can see farther. We can hear further. Yeah. But. We also can feel like our emotional states also get weirdly extended and our societal like decisions get also moved around. And so it's just like a bigger swimming pool that people are trying to like desperately right, tread right. in. So anyways. I want to start talking a little more about like the – let's like jump forward to get to where we are today. And I want to start that by saying uh, I think maybe the first time that I heard your name – I used to – I was one of the kids that used to go to the record store every Tuesday and just buy whatever was in the new section and release section. And I Thank ended up – Thank goodness for you. Uh, I ended up buying I think maybe in 02 or 03 um, – the Weather Project, which was you, Radioactive, and Bus Driver, right? Which is 10 years old this year. 10 years old this year. See, so it was in 03. There you go. I think that was the first time I heard your name. So how did you start breaking into that scene? When when did you put down the clarinet and start picking up quantized beat machines? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's the thing, too. It's like, so I always um, kind of parallel to playing music, I was imbibing it. I was listening to it. All. I was always really passionate about that same thing. Like every Tuesday, every Monday night, like being that person who was there at the record store and not because I felt like it was a cool place. You know, there's that high fidelity myth that like right. the, the record store, it just was like, that was a source of amazement for me. Like there was these sounds that would dance in my life and not just because of substances that just really, really gave me good feelings. And a, a huge revelation for me as a kid was rave culture, mm. which was from, from so far away from all the way distant UK. And so that's where a lot of this music culture came from. The, the Summer of Love stuff in 89 and on, the Acid House Summer of Love stuff, 
um, 89 on to the rave stuff was something that was really interesting to me. And like again, around 96, 97, is that no, 92, 92, 91, 92. I was wow. like 13, 14. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I see, I feel like too young to rave. I never even found out about the rave culture. stuff. like, I had never hit Alaska until the late nineties, like 96, 97. Mm. When, and it's funny. Cause I always talk about like how I've, I thought that I saw the first generation of that, of like kids taking ecstasy and fucking yeah. chilling in a basement, listening to drum and bass and shit. And now we're in the second generation of that. This is so strange. Sure. But anyways, uh, so the rave culture hits you in 92 and, and you get into it hugely, like crazy, massively it hits me like a ton of bricks. And like, were I, there raves out here? At oh the time? dude, rave culture was really Huge. big in LA. It's, we actually had an art, um, an art rave scene for a long time mm -hmm. that again, like acid house culture in, in the UK was not seen as being like a party culture so much as it's like a social movement mm. away from the Thatcher area extremes of disparity of, of money culture and all this stuff. So it's like, it's seen as being not as uh, like, at least in hindsight, like people talk about it as being less about like some never ending party. We just did ecstasy and, and checked out. It was like a little bit more socially active and conscious. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of ecstasy in people's <laughs> yeah. eyeballs, basically. Yeah. And then it also had a parallel out here in LA for whatever reason, be it the art culture that was happening in the late eighties in LA, there was just something about Los Angeles that was on fire. And part of that was racial politics and part yeah. of that was drugs. And part of that was just the, the fact that it just art lived here in a way that was fundamental to American culture at that time. Absolutely. And so we had our raves and they were amazing. Like if you, if you ever get a chance, like, there's some documentation of this kind of stuff, but a lot of it was just these illegal weird moon parties, like the kind of full moon parties that would happen out in the middle of the desert. And, and also just like, I just remember being way too young to, to go to a normal club, but going to these, like I only went to a handful, but like to one of those warehouse waves where they literally are breaking into a warehouse, roll in a sound system and go until the cops come and then you run. Wow. You know, sound systems running like faster than you are. It's like, it's literally in the back of a flatbed truck so they can just like drive. Just do it. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's like lots of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And like Insomniac, which has now gone on to these huge uh, like EDM events, like that started with illegals back in the day. Like people like Pasquale, who people, you know, it's like one of those dudes who gets like routinely has like millions of people come through his Las Vegas events. Right. Like, you know, like up to hundreds of thousands of people at a single event. Like that dude was just like... Weird, weird promoter dude that yeah. just did the you know took a chance on this kind of form of music especially the rave stuff when that started to hit and then you know a lot of it was uk but some of the american artists like moby and and some of those people came up at that same time right and just yeah it was and so that stuff special. affected you and did you were, was it like i need i need, I need to, to try this no I need was, to make it, this it was like it was like what is this mysterious magic i will never know what this thing is because the dj is literally making it up on stage and then you learn really and quick. so then you had like, to take the apart DJ the tv not, well kind of yeah it's like the, you really learn quickly the dj is not making up all these songs. Right. He's actually playing other people's music and right. still with some artistry and like the selection is still a mystery and you to find, to figure out what somebody was playing was so incredibly hard. Mm. It was crazy back in the day because not only was it like the DJ wasn't just up high on some like pedestal and you couldn't see literally they would cover their records with like whatever it was cover, to like cover and black it out. Yeah, yeah. Because they didn't want to have their, well, and there was no Shazam set. back then. There's no Google. There's no nothing. Dude, it know? was, it was the most satisfying mystery when you figured out what somebody was playing just because you had a fragment of a sample and you were able to like go to the store and like, figure out what somebody else sampled and then like, oh, that guy's production style sounds similar to this. So maybe it was like an illegal white label that he did and like blah, blah, blah. So yeah. I started to get real heavy into that stuff. Wow. And 
only by the time I got to college did I have any kind of confidence to start asking the right questions to figure out how things were made. Uh-huh. Because man, the, the who were you asking? I mean, at that point, I was like taking classes and synthesizers, and like, okay. and I had friends that had like rich friends that had sam- samplers and synthesizers, but I myself didn't didn't really have an, a chance to afford anything. So I was like had all these like little like like cheapo guitar pedals, and I was like running things through my bass and like looping things and trying experiments, but like no knowledge like because because the stuff was so out of out of control so yeah. like uh, off limits right and there was just a few moments of daylight i just remember a few records that kind of broke it down or some of the records would have like little like sections of the record that were made for scratching actually this is like i never was a scratch kid right but scratch culture was hugely fundamental to me and i had a bunch of those records just because i could hear the sounds on their own right and like play with them so like i i got decks early in my college life to spin mostly drum and bass and those kind of variants of right. those kind of styles, but also just like to try to wrestle with the thing. And I think the part of the reason a lot of DJs do make good producers is because they have to wrestle with the music. They have to figure out, they know that there's like eight bars before the break and whatever. Right. And, but nowadays it's especially like rulesy because of how easy it is the technology is. But I just remember back in the day, like it was so easy to make music that didn't line up and wasn't quantized and stuff. It was hard to get things quantized properly. It was hard to have all the machines play together. Right. It wasn't just a matter of some MIDI protocol. It was actually like things just didn't like each other. Huh. So the secrets that these producers held were a little bit more mystical than nowadays where it's just like, oh, here in Ableton, this is yeah, the trick yeah, you do yeah. and this yeah. is the filter and this is like the, the Skrillex sound and this <laughs> right. is, you know, massive preset and boom, 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 and you're there. <laughs> And that's that's okay, but yeah. yeah oh, it, I was just running through the trap filter. Oh, dude, <laughs> the trapifier. Yeah, did you see that? Dude, it's amazing. Yeah, you just turn it up, turn it down, <laughs> get turned. Turn yeah, it to turn uh, mode. Turn it up and get turned. Um, I love the fact that, like, yeah, you, you had to fucking really strive to teach yourself. You know what I mean? Like, that's that's amazing. I also, and this is something I feel is part of my story, and probably not that important because I definitely feel part of a wonderful community of musicians here now. Yeah. LA beat scene, just LA general dub lab. These are just like these, uh, low end theory as a community. Yeah, absolutely. Which doesn't just include just beat makers. It's like a larger, larger circle. Amazing. Yeah. But I do very much remember coming up, no open doors. Nobody wanted the weird kid from Santa Monica to spin their bad drill and bass or their weird form of jungle or whatever. So there wasn't any community. And this is something that really structured my early musical life is that like this feeling that there isn't, there wasn't any like shared secrets that I just had to figure this stuff out. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason I've, I've come into my sound and I feel it's a gift now that I wasn't let in to play because I know all those dudes aren't around anymore. And it's interesting that you word it that way because that's another thing that I keep hearing like thematically throughout your story is like it's the kind of this feeling of always being the outsider. But now the outsider, you know, you have a great following and, and, and like there are people that follow you now. You know what I mean? Well, I definitely feel like there's there's an important thing to do, which is to not do that to anybody else ever. Like mm-hmm. I'm not going to ever try to close. Like if somebody on SoundCloud hits me up and wants me to hear their music, I'm going to listen to it. Right, like, right. I, I know very acutely what it feels like to be awash in a lot of wonderful culture and sound and not feel part of any of it. Mm. And like, why would you ever want to do that to somebody? Both right. because it's just shitty to like, to, to treat somebody like they have something less to say, whereas their voice is just as valid as my own or anybody's. Uh, cause they have something honest to say. If they have something honest to say, then it's just as valid. If they're just trying to make a buck or just get some shine, right. I, don't, I could give a shit. But right. So in that way, it's it's very important to to have that community emphasis, and also just that thing too. It's just like, man, there are so many talented people. Absolutely, and it's just, I mean, and sometimes talent comes in the form of just being able to work that extra mile, or sometimes it is a natural thing. 
and just, you know, just they deserve ears. These people, I want what's best for, and this sounds so cheesy, but I want what's best for the music. And that's for as much good stuff to be heard as possible rather than just like something easy. Right. And a lot of people chase easy. Absolutely. Yeah. After the rave stuff and you're, you're starting to play and looping things, like you said, with yeah. your guitar pedals and such, like what is the first piece of hardware after the techniques that you have? Did you pick so up an MPC? No, I never did the MPC, even though I think I would have liked to. It was a little on my, my price range because it wasn't just you had to get the MPC. You had to get all the peripherals, like the zip drive and all that other stuff. And it cost cost cash. And I, right. again, I wasn't the smartest dealer to be able to figure that side out. Right. I think I was spending money in, in other weird places. I was having like... I had a suit made once that was all camo patterned, like a wow. mod mod suit yeah. that was camo patterned because I was a junglist for whatever stupid reason. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. It's not not the best choices uh, made, but um, I did get an A three thousand or a yeah A three thousand Yamaha sampler. Okay, and that was my first piece of like real serious hardware. And does that does that have pads and keys? No pads, just keys. No keys, nothing. Just like just the head, just oh, the unit. Okay, and it, I, I just got like breakout stuff. I was doing a lot of stuff on, uh, I got early, um, early sequencing software with like a pro tools, which I still use just a much more modern version. I use logic really early on and tried stuff and then quickly switched over to pro tools and then just kind of worked my way up. How long is it when you start making, you know, what, I mean, I don't know if you, what you were calling them back then, but making beats essentially Yeah. like before you started finding that sense of community, like when did, cause I, I already knew you, like I said, in 2003 as like a dude who was like kind of outwardly orbiting around the blowed kind of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing too, is like, uh, I never went to blowed. I never, never did. Right. I never went to, um, when it, especially it's heyday. Like I had friends that were as a kid who were like want to be MCs who would, were on the freestyle fellowship and doing that stuff. But I never actually went downtown uh-huh. or to Lamar Park to do that kind of stuff. It's just I missed a huge swath of LA by not driving by just being a shut in in Santa Monica. Right. There's all this amazing stuff happening, the riots happening and stuff. I right. was just like chilling in somebody's backyard when that went down. It's just a trip. But so um, it was really like. In college, I was in college radio, which again, is such an amazing uh, crucible that so many people's like young musical story goes through is either being an MD or a PD or just That's being a DJ That's one of the things I'm most sad about is that the college I ended up staying at didn't have a college radio station because I always wanted to get involved in that. Yeah, and it's anyway. being dismantled in general across yeah. the country anyways mm-hmm. it's as, as programs get cut and things mm-hmm. get changed around mm-hmm. to being more like moneyed. That stuff goes to the first thing that goes out the window and the whole college music journal, CMJ, is like it's less of an emphasis. So than you had your own show? on. I had not only my own show and which was all this kind of records that I've been collecting for a while, this rave stuff. But then like – and I had of course the 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. slot at first and moved my way up and then was eventually the MD of this radio station. But alongside me was this guy, Mark McNeil, who ended up founding Dub Lab. Oh, OK. And so I was part of that story as that was kind of starting to happen. We were the first um, college radio station with the most electronic music okay. emphasis. So we were – we're really at this electronic music push. Like, you know, every, all the DJs that were on there was, a, that was a first sense of community, but not a producer community. It was just a, a musical community. And we were playing for like nobody, like there was nobody listening to our station. Um, or very few people. I remember at one point I like got on the airwaves and was like, I'll give someone $5 if they call in. <laughs> no, no calls. Like, uh, well, that's, that's great. Should not ask that question out loud too often. Um, but then that was the first sense of community. And then later on Dub Lab became this huge internet success. Whereas they, internet radio was like a very new idea when they started up in the, in 99, I want to say. Uh-huh. And so I was one of the DJs on that one. And that was the first place where my music, my own music got heard. And then I, my first release was on a dub lab record. Dub lab presents freeways that came out on emperor Norton records, which was an interesting label at the time. 
And, um, yeah, that I, and I so feel much like, happened because eventually I found a community that I was part of. Yeah. And, and like I said, or like you said, you were there from the very start of what has, uh, developed into low end theory and everyone that orbits around it. I know Kev used to throw like kind of almost ravey parties back in the day, didn't well, he? He was part of herb. He was part of the, uh, I want. I don't want to say the editorial staff. I think the design staff. He might right. have been actually the head designer at Earth uh-huh. for a period of time. Um, he really got like he was part of the auditorium for a while, and that was like the kind of early vestiges of Jungle. And like he definitely did a lot of production for the Blowed people, but like his own thing, I felt like really came into itself at Concrete Jungle. Yeah, Concrete Jungle. That's right. What I was where he of. was running both the main room and he had like edit doing like the back room, like hip hop yeah. DJ, the smoke room basically. Uh-huh. And the front room, this was all at the uh, Silver Lake. Um, it used to be Spaceland, but now it has a different name. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Satellite. Satellite. Okay, yeah. And uh, so the front room was Jungle, and, and he, he picked a uh, bus driver, a young bus driver, to be the MC to be the in that MC, room, right. which is crazy because he wasn't good at first. Uh-huh. He didn't know what he was doing. He was talking. It was like way too chatty over you know the beginning and then like <laughs> way too like, like not saying enough or blah, blah, And yeah. now he's like – it's just interesting where people cut their teeth, you know. Yeah, absolutely. that definitely is a good example. Is that where you met Buzz at first, or I think so. I must yeah. have. I mean, but I don't think I really met him at that point. He was dude on stage, and I was not the dude on stage. Right. Know? When did you become the dude on stage? Yeah, that was a little later. What year? I don't know. It was actually like because I, I feel like I said I, I've been in California since '01 is when I moved here. I think, and um, at first, actually, I was going to a school in Pomona, and yeah. so I used to go to a lot of shows at the Glass House. I could be crazy, but I feel like I even used to I used to hear your name around there at the time, like uh, at at various rap shows, and I know that I used to see like subtitle down at shows all the time yeah. and stuff. And that's somebody that you've known for a while, or no? Yeah, for a while, for yeah. a while. Not since not since '01, but yeah. I mean. So here's the thing. So it's a small scene, is what it well, is. Well, here's the thing. Madlib, Madlib has been hugely influential to me in terms of opening doors. Like that first Double I Presents Freeways release, Madlib was on there as well, mm. and as well as like Mia Doy Todd was on there, Dintel was on there. There was a bunch of us in this kind of odd assortment. It's like a really weird collection in hindsight. But um, yeah, I, I had a song that kind of got a nice look, and College Radio treated me very well. And again being lucky enough to be this is before the totally disruptive period of the internet but to be on a record that was pushed through college radio the college radio system and i got a lot more play i had a song on the record called a mash note which did these rounds that i never even realized and again other songs like people like madlib being on there just were really fundamental and madlib ended up doing a remix of my first record invention and then he ended up taking a song from invention and making a song accordion for mad villain Mm -hmm. so there's this funny tendrils that happened Mm. and the hip-hop that hip hop emphasis was partially because I was doing a lot of stuff with Carlos Nino, who really brought a bus driver and this guy Satch from um, Global Flotations on board. And so okay. those were my two hip hop, like those are the first people I had MC on my stuff. But like it had nothing to do with the fact that I was close proximity with him or anything. It was just Carlos was like just really like matchmaking. A connector. Kind of fun- yeah, like yeah. a fundamental spider in the middle of the web. Right. There's a few people in LA, Daddy Kev's one, Carlos Nino's another, and, and Mark McNeil. And then there's others that you could you could point at, but those three are like on the on the creative side, like the most genius visionaries. Super important to the LA story of the aughts. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean and Carlos reaching back even further, but like it's like he was like almost under twenty one and he was doing like crazy heavy hitting jazz shows and like bringing in the bloat in on that. Wow. Like taking people like Durf Rekla and matching them up with like peace or whatever. And like wow. just the weirdest stuff yeah. was happening. And that, that kind of friction is what makes heat. That's what makes this stuff possible. And it, so like, okay, so now looking at these, like these people who are a little, like a little older, a little uh, elders, you know, like really showing the way. 
but we always are hungry for that young thing. Right. It's beautiful, that dichotomy, the fact that they have these people who are willing to kind of be quieter on some of the release stuff. I mean, Daddy Kev is an amazing discography. He doesn't do as much of it anymore, but he's very happy, it seems like, to, to have spaces that bring those kind of frictions together. Yeah. Well, and he's so fundamental in allowing people's music to be heard as yeah. well. Because he well, he's, he's literally become a distri- distribution he's, point. He is. He's literally. a distribution point. Yeah. And also, he is a gatekeeper of sorts, but he's also a really good curator as well. Um, you know, very talented man. Uh, yeah. We're in his studio right now. All praise is due to Daddy Kev. Exactly. Um, I want to get to the point where you are on stage. What was your early stage like? And then, of course, I want to just briefly touch on how it eventually um, came to where it is now with the monome and briefly explain what the monome is to people because they're going to see it on a video and and they're not going to understand it. And you've tried to explain it to me and I almost still don't understand it, but it it it, fucking looks awesome and it's it's really cool to watch. It all hopefully makes sense when it starts to be envisioned. I mean, hopefully when people see it, it makes sense. But the, the basic truth is that in 2001, when I started playing shows electronically, I had taken all the stuff from my studio and just brought it basically with me. And I, I played instruments. I had this modified guitar and I bass clarinet and all these kind of things, these things. Two hands, ten fingers, not that much happening. Uh-huh. You know, some changes here there. Very atonal, very strange, dissonant compositions because that's just what I was afforded. Like, that's just what I was bringing to the table. And so I did that for two years. And then sometime in 2003, I don't exactly remember the month, but I played a show and and I'm amazed that people would book me. But I mean, this was kind of the scene. It was a, like in a nice amount of experimentation happening in the scene because the overground rave scene was so saturated. Just there was no, you know, just there was no going into it. You were playing cheesy drum and bass or cheesy whatever, or you were on the underground and the underground was teeming with life. Just it was more on the hip hop side. So we, you know, you you do that or the break course stuff. I mean, the break course shows were amazing back in the day. And so that's what was happening. And so 2003, I played a show in San Diego and I met the people who, this guy Brian Crabtree and this guy Peter Siegerstrung, and they were to, kind of together, but mainly Brian were making what became the monome. They had a very early prototype of it at the time. And I was just blown away because a lot of my music is about sample or taking uh, existing music, existing instruments and treating them like samples. So you treat the thing like something you want to destroy and, and work with like taffy. You know, it's like you're kind of constantly pushing and pulling on the audio source to make it what it is. Mm-hmm. To see an instrument in the monome that could deal with with samples in this way that that felt like what I was trying to do in the studio, but doing it live was a revelation. And the thing that's crazy is that in 2003 it was doing that. I'm still doing pretty much the same thing it was doing in 2003 in my modern show. And still to this day, not much other equipment can do that. Wow. And I don't understand we live literally all the promise of all this technology things literally like there's all these programs that have come and gone since there's all this stuff. It's just like, it's exploded. The stuff, the possibilities are, are limitless in all these ways. And yet I'm still using a piece of gear that's fundamentally from 2003 and hasn't changed very much. Do you feel like you've mastered the mono? No, no, Do you no, learn no. things? I, right I, I learn things all the time. I mean, I feel, I feel like if someone were to sit down at a piano and say, I've mastered this, right. like, we'd laugh at him. And I feel the same way about this. It's a real instrument. Wow. It takes practice and, and I put a lot of sweat into it and everything, but I still feel like I'm learning so much yeah, yeah. all the time, that's all awesome. the time. Tell us about the new record that just came out. Yeah, with sure. Anticon. I have a record called Drown Out. It's my first on Anticon. Anticon being a label that's been around for 15 years. So yep. a long while. They work a We've lot. We've had Sean on the podcast. We, we're, awesome. we're Anticon fans. And Baths, actually, too. Oh, yeah. yeah fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, okay, he was our first episode. Well, wonderful. I mean, Baths, I, I'm so proud to say that I, I'm part of his story. Sean, a little less, but I've known him since before he was the head of, of, of yeah. Anticon. And just so proud of those guys. And so, I mean, like. Yeah, I think Baths actually brought you up on our podcast because uh, the, the first show that he played as bads i think was like one where you guys were at all at uh 
um, what is it, Henry Fonda? This was before he was Baths. He was playing as post-fetus. That's right, post-fetus. He, he said yeah, that. And, and we, we you're, you're the one who invited him to that show, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, we, yeah. we had him on, and we all liked what he did. I mean, I had played some other shows with him, and he always had these different ensembles. But yeah. to put him on that show and to know that he made Cerulean, like, whatever, the next weekend. Yeah. Still, he, it's amazingly great. talented guy. Yeah, but anyway, talented. tell us about your record. Yeah, so Drown Out, it's the first in Anticon, and it was a difficult record for me to make. It was a record I, I feel like it kind of tumbled out of me in this fashion because it's a lot of uh, about some grief that was going on in my life, some death and departure, as well as some some uh, some strife in general. Some, I think we all live in this constant state of fooling ourselves that the world is okay, that our existence tomorrow, the sun will rise and the sun will set and we kind of continue. When you have disruptors in your life, when you have this like punctuation marks, be them question marks or exclamation points that wake you up to the fact that tomorrow is not promised, it is something that is given to us by our own powers. When that fully sets in, when you, you know, it's like what we do today have these ramifications. It's very paralyzing and it become, it begs that question even more like what we're doing about it, how we're living our lives, what our choices are, what, what choices are out of our hands. When you start to think in that stew too much, it's, it's hard. It's, the weight of it becomes unbearable to a degree and it's easy to kind of psychologically um, – have difficulty. There isn't that many tools in my, at least in my toolbox there. I didn't have many tools to deal with that stuff. So mm. I did what came naturally to me, which was to make music out of it, but that wasn't a solution. It just became this weird way of, of taking the colors and starting to blend them all together mm. into pain paint in a kind of way. So I, I spent a series of months in that thing. And part of that was, like I said, death. And part of it was sickness. My dad um, was diagnosed with uh, very bad tongue cancer mm. and not given that that much um, hope. And then other friends had some sickness and Austin Peralta passed and all this yeah. stuff happened in a very short period of time in my life. Um, or, you know, a very congested period of 2012. And, uh, I just, that was the year I kind of stopped. Mm. I couldn't make a record. I couldn't just release something. I couldn't do what I had done traditionally. And yet I, I have no other tools. I have nothing else I've ever done. No way to cope. No way to cope. Yeah. And this record isn't coping, but it's the record that came out of that. Is it darker than, than your other previous projects? I don't know. I, Cause I always associate, uh, when I hear the word Daedalus that, or like the name Daedalus, I associate it with kind of these like angelic melodic beats. Like that's what, uh, Oh, then yeah, it's darker. Then. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I, but there's some stuff in there like that. So yeah. there's some uplift. I mean, there's like a, there was a talk, a push and pull with myself about like what the record should be come and that was yeah. part of it was that are you yeah. happy with it yeah I'm, I'm overjoyed with it awesome. yeah absolutely like it's it it became something that was totally outside of myself and that's all what i'm looking for yeah. anyways if anything comes truly from my own voice i don't think it really like it's something again for my ears maybe more than for other people but since this kind of transcended that i'm very proud of the the ways it kind of start to build and hopefully when people hear it when they come across it if they come across it in a natural fashion it's not a hyphy record it's not this record right. that like demands attention right i'm cool with that like yeah. i've done 13 records like i'm okay with some softballs in the mix that hopefully communicate to people something about their own depth or their own situation and that they're not alone and that the community is complete and that we are out for each other we're like right. re i'm like really looking out for people who are going through similar things because as much as I have my wife and I have like these other support structures, I felt pretty lost. Right. Part of it is because stuff, you know, my, my wife was also going through things too. And it's like, everyone's going through things constantly. And it's like, I really want to be a better person looking out for other people in, in ways that are something I can own, which is partially through music. Right. So that's, you know, it's been a nice journey in that way too, to have this record finally come out after months and months of kind of dealing with the things and stuff and actually start to immediately connect with people who are going through similar things, not just because the story I'm telling, but just because the actual music on the thing communicates it. And that's important. And it's another, it's, that's, 
you know, communicating with people through the music in, in a sense also prevents them from feeling like an outsider in some way too, totally. which kind of brings the thing full circle. And, yeah. uh, Thank you. That was a that was a great podcast. Was, I really enjoyed talking to you. Where can people find you online? Uh, I do all my own social media. So anywhere that says Daedalus, the way I spell it, D A E D E L U S, yeah, will be me. Hopefully, I mean, okay. unless so Twitter D A E, yeah, maybe not Kick K I K. I don't know who does Daedalus. I don't there. know what Kick is. Don't either. worry about. I've it. I've been getting a it's lot fed of Fed Life. It's Fed Life. Don't worry about that. I don't even know what that means. Fetish culture. Oh, Anyways, uh, <laughs> I've been getting so many tweets about like spam tweets about Kick lately. I'm like, yeah. what the fuck is this? It's yeah. like Snapchat, but oh, for okay. adulty stuff. Oh, okay, cool. I think, or not to say that Snapchat isn't, but anyways, yeah, I don't do that kind of stuff. But I'm talking yeah. like the core Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Instagram, it's all Daedalus, D-A-E-D-E-L-U-S, right? Yeah, and, and feel free to like actually reach out and say words because yeah. I'm out there reading it. I might not always be in the best place to respond, be it on tour or something else in life, but I'm, I'm definitely the But I got to say, you are it. very, you're awesomely responsive as far as phone communication and email, so thank you for that as well. Dude, of course, thank yeah, you for having most me definitely. I appreciate it, man, and I look forward uh, to hearing the song that we're going to see you perform on the Monom, which is going to be called... It'll be a mix. It's going to be a mix. Awesome. Yeah. That's even better. Thank you guys for tuning in. This was kind of neat. My name is Lee. You guys might know me as Intuition. You can find me on Twitter at It's Intuition. You can find my man Ben Shim behind the boards making the shit sound buttery at I Am Database. Yes. Uh, find us on kindaneat.net. Follow us on Facebook. Just kind of neat. So much words. Uh, follow us. Rate us. Subscribe. Give us five stars. Blah, 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 blah. Thank you so much, Datalist. Thank you very much. Really had a great time with that conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you guys for tuning in. This was kind of neat. Dude, of course not.